says that I lost connection, I'm going to give it a moment. Oh no, it happened again. No fucking way. But you're still online. My internet connection is bullshit. I think that atheistic materialism hurt us. The egregore is after us, mate. Okay, so the rest of the podcast is going to happen telepathically. Hello, can, can you hear me? Physical yeah. light is being a <laughs> bitch today. Reload? Can you hear me? What happens if I hit reload? Hang on, I'm going to try this chat function. Just in case it's still recording me, here's a little bit of keytar. and welcome to this week's episode. Apologies for the super dramatic introduction, but I thought it was necessary just to put together a small collage of the technical issues that plagued the recording of the conversation that I had with the Reverend Eric Arneson. I was really looking forward to having Eric on the show. He dropped by earlier this week to talk about Cornelius Agrippa and three books of occult philosophy and all manner of different philosophical underpinnings and questions surrounding how we practice astrological magic in 2024. And we managed to get a somewhat coherent discussion around this, despite the fact that we were plagued by these technical issues that just did not seem to leave us alone. So that was just a taste of what we had to deal with this week. And apologies if it was a bit um, of a departure from the usual chill introduction to each week's episode. Nonetheless, let's have a listen to the discussion and I've left a little bit of the conversation around the internet connection in the recording. So if you just want to kind of skip past those towards the end, go for it. Otherwise, they're pretty hilarious to listen to us both have nervous breakdowns while we try and navigate the gremlins and the archons and all sorts of bad stuff. So without any further ado, here's the conversation. Okay, cool. So I'm I'm joined by the the very Reverend Eric Arneson. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Hello, Matt. Yes, you did pronounce my name correctly, Eric Arneson. That's me. I uh, yes, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good to be here. I, I've enjoyed your podcast, and I'm trying to think if if I've ever um, recorded with somebody in Australia before, and I think I may have once or twice. But it's exciting because it's so hard to coordinate times. So I'm really glad that we were able to find a time. Yeah, it's okay. So 11 o'clock where you are and it's about 6 o'clock, 6.30 where I am. So that's not, that's not too bad. I'm, used, I'm more used to getting up early now that I've got kids than I would have been, you know, a couple of years ago, trust me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so welcome. It's, it's really awesome that you're here because you're an interesting person, Reverend Eric. You know, I'm looking, I was looking I at like your website. Was that a threat? <laughs> <laughs> You're of great interest to us here in the land down under, my friend. <laughs> so you describe yourself on your website as a Johannes Factotum, which is, you know, wonderful to see that phrase being used in, in 2024. But there's, there's so much that you do. I, I'm going to do a little bit of an intro kind of, you know, before like a post, post-production. But tell us about yourself, mate. What's, what do you do? What's your story? All right. Well, I guess, you know, I enjoy a lot of hobbies and I think I have the tendency to get really nerdy and cerebral with almost any hobby that I kind of spend time with. So like among them, you know, I've been published a lot writing about Freemasonry, for instance. So I have a lot of Masonic credentials and independent scholarship uh, re regarding that. I have done a lot of ceremonial magic and occultism and stuff for, you know, decades. And a lot of that is sort of focused on, you know, I started, I sort of started off with a focus on Golden Dawn style magic. So I ended up doing a lot of like Hermetic Kabbalah, but I got introduced to Renaissance magic pretty early on in that, in that journey. So, you know, I, I was dealing with like Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy back in like the early 2000s. And, you know, I've been doing tarot for decades. I really enjoy music and I've been sort of diving into kind of like the esoteric, weird, occult aspects of music. And even that has taken a very nerdy turn. I have read too many music theory books in the last year. Like somebody 
should stop me. <laughs> I so I guess that's, yeah. So, and, and then also, you know, I do lots of software development. I, I studied computer science in school. I've done lots of programming and things like that. Uh, but even there, I have veered into kind of like the esoteric and less mainstream sort of stuff. I really enjoy functional programming languages and Lisp-based programming languages and things that most people are like, that's not Python. What the heck are you doing? I almost swear. Can I swear? I know that people down under use different swear words, so I can say, what the bloody heck are you doing? Or Oh whatever. my God. No, look, <laughs> absolute freedom of speech is the rule here at the Dragonstone okay. podcast. So go nuts, mate. We don't, we don't really right. uh, mind too much. <laughs> okay, so I, can, so I can say bollocks. You can say whatever you fucking like, my friend. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that's sort of why I describe myself as a Johannes Factotum. Because another thing is like in my... In my rent, the rent paying part of my life, I have so many interests. I kind of don't really enjoy real jobs. So I sort of just do freelance, whatever somebody will pay me for. <laughs> so, so I do software development. I do uh, freelance writing. I do tarot. I do, you know, uh, speaking on occult topics, speaking on history stuff, like public speaking, like whatever, like whatever people want me to do. I officiate weddings, you know, I, so. I am a Johannes factotum in that sense, and that I am not going to just be like, this is the only thing that I will accept as a freelance job. If you need something done and I can do it, let's let's talk the price. You know, that's so that's sort of the Johannes factotum part of part of it, I guess. I guess a different way of describing that too is you're a Renaissance man. You've you're a polymath. And you know, the website yeah, yeah. your website's amazing, right? Well, There's, thanks. <laughs> I'm gonna link I to did, everything. <laughs> okay. I have um I have uh, I think three different websites that I maintain and I've okay. designed all of them, which is which explains the way they look. Web design is not something that I've gotten super dirty about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I find them incredibly easy to use. And you know, the one that I'm referring to is Arnamancy.com. Um, oh yeah. It, there's just so much stuff there. So everything will be will be linked in the show notes, but you've got to check this this website out. There's blogs, there's articles, there's lots of tarot resources. I do love a good collection of tarot resources. <laughs> there's a nifty daemon name uh, generator and sigil generator. Um, yeah, you know, thanks. There's got- links <laughs> <are> plenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I've been really getting into sort of like programming. So. Okay, here's another area that I've gotten really nerdy about lately, which is math in Renaissance occultism, because there's a ton of math. I mean, you do astrology, so you know how much math is already involved in like esoteric and occult topics. But, but Renaissance occultists went kind of nuts with it, and they put math all over the place. So there's tons of like weird algorithms and weird little formula that you can do many of which are written in Latin and not really written out in like mathematical language. So you have to kind of like decipher them and put them back together. And then they're kind of awkward to do by hand. So I'm like, well, computers can do all this stuff for us. Like, you know, you leave part of it to do by hand because the work is, you know, the mathematical work is part of the magical work. But let's let's make it easy for people to get into. So yeah, I've got more, I've got more tools that I've been kind of working on. I kind of fiddle around with that in my free time and write software to help occultists. Yeah, no, it's, it, I've often thought about math in Renaissance astrology and Renaissance magic generally. And aside from the fact that I'm convinced that mathematics is ruled by Saturn because everyone is reviled by it and doesn't like to talk about it or admit <laughs> that they're doing it. Yeah. So when you say, oh, you do a lot of math because you're an astrologer, I'm like, I don't do math, I do astrology, or I don't do it's math, math, I do nu- numerology, or I, <laughs> there's, there's, <laughs> we're, we're well, not aware how much goes into it, right? <laughs> we aren't. And, you know, honestly, you know, Agrippa, one of the things he says at the beginning of book two is, if you want to be a magician, you have to be, you have to do math. Like, without mm. math, it's not magic. He's basically the Donald yeah. Duck of the 16th century. <laughs> nice so walked around cologne with no pants on for the most part just speaking incoherently (laughs) right Um, right i I could i could imagine that i could imagine that um so on the on the topic of agrippa one of one of the things that you do eric the polymath renaissance man there's there's a podcast there's an amazing podcast guys so you, you have to check out this podcast 
because part of the you know part of the the offering is nine episodes, no less than nine episodes covering pretty much a very very broad, nuanced, detailed introduction to Cornelius Agrippa, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa the subject of today's episode, and everything from Agrippa's historical and philosophical context to his worldview. There is an episode on math and Agrippa, which I particularly enjoyed, not because of the math, (laughs) but simply because of the amount of apologies and caveats and congratulations (laughs) that you offer to the listener for, for choosing to even listen to the episode. (laughs) Um, you know, so you've spent a lot of time with Agrippa, we can assume based on this, this wonderful, loving, dedicated dedication that you've made. Yeah, it was, you know, I mean, I always had a soft spot for the book. I got introduced to it very, very early on in my, in my occult journey, like I, I mentioned earlier. And it was sort of introduced me to, introduced me like as the way to do planetary magic and planetary talismans. And I had basically, you know, the big black Golden Dawn book, the Israel Rigardi one, and the big black uh, Llewellyn uh, Three Books of Cult Philosophy, you know, Donald Tyson's edited version. And they were like sort of cross-referenced. You'd open up one and be like, oh yeah, go go look at this page in Agrippa. And then in Agrippa, you'd be like, oh yeah, go to this page in the Golden Dawn book. So I had sort of this way of making planetary talismans using (laughs) Golden Dawn techniques and Agrippa techniques that was taught to me by a teacher. And so I spent a lot of time with Agrippa. I, the, my first read through was Donald Tyson's edition. It was the, the JF translation, just, just like you. And I found it really, I, so, and that was, but the thing is, it was so long ago. I didn't, I didn't know necessarily what to look for. And I didn't really understand what I was getting into or what I was, <laughs> I guess I didn't understand. I definitely did not predict that I would still be reading that book 20 years later. But, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, these new translations came out. The first new translations of Agrippa since, you know, 1650. And so I read those. And the translator of the Inner Traditions edition, which is, which is really, really excellent, is Eric Perdue. Another Eric, just in case. This is probably the point at which a lot of people are listening and they're like, oh, shit, this isn't the Eric we thought. And now they're going to stop. But no, <laughs> Eric Perdue was the translator. <laughs> I'm the other Eric. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and in a lot of Eric's interviews on his translation work, he sort of emphasized like nobody, nobody really realizes that if you pay attention to this book and you actually read it closely, Agrippa is literally laying out an occult philosophy. Like he's got, he's got a system of thought, a system of approach. Like he has a plan how all this stuff works. He explains his whole magical worldview in this book. And I was like, huh, really? You know, I was used to sort of flipping through the book and coming across some really weird shit, you know, like individual chapters where I'd read it and be like, this makes no sense. Like what's going on in this chapter? So that really kind of encouraged me to go and take another look and realize that there are sort of like really significant themes running throughout it. And, and of course, you know, I wasn't the first one to do this. Like this had been something that had been going on in in the scholarly side of like the history of western esotericism for a while so you could already find books that that are written by historians and scholars who are sort of like ah yes you know the the renaissance philosophy was influenced by heinrich cornelius agrippa in these ways blah 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 blah. but then actually reading it for yourself reading it through the eyes of an occultist you're kind of like oh shit this changes things like this is a much different way to look at for instance how astrology works or how talismans work or how magic itself works. This is a different way to look at how correspondences work. Like all of these things are sort of laid out with mechanisms and descriptions and, and ways to examine things. The podcast series that I did about the book happened because I spent a very large amount of money on editions of Agrippa uh, that year. And I was just in a panic. I was like, how the hell do I how do I justify this? How do I justify this fact, the fact that I spent this much money on multiple copies of the same book? Because none of them are cheap. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, yeah. So I was talking with my Hermetic Lodge here in, here in Portland, Oregon about it. And they were like, well, why don't you, you know, do something with what you've learned? And I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, I don't know, make a podcast about it. And I was like, oh, yeah. So that's, that's what happened. I, it was sort of inspired by that. And the podcast, I honestly, like, 
I was originally planning to go like 15 episodes, but uh, each of those mm. episodes was so much work to do that I kind of wrapped it up around nine because it was just, it was, it, it got to be a little bit too much. And I was, it was delaying all of, it was delaying everything. It was just, I was working on it so much. I just didn't have time to do anything else. So I had to, had to wrap it up faster than I wanted to. Look, I, I could have easily listened to 15 episodes and not just because your knowledge <laughs> and, you know, obviously comes from very close readings of multiple editions <laughs> of three books of occult philosophy, but, but also because you've got so many guests that pop in, right? So people yeah. who are experts, not, not only Monsieur Perdue himself, the other Eric, who you sort of have on in multiple instances to kind of describe nuanced ways in which he's gone about that, that fantastic translation from inner traditions. Um, mm-hmm. But also you have actual talisman makers. You, you have people mm-hmm. who, you know, and the production values are fantastic, right? So in a nutshell, guys, go out and listen to nine episodes of, of just pure auditory bliss and then come back and listen to the rest of this interview. <laughs> well, here's the thing about uh, making that series. Like, it turns out that the learning didn't really stop. You know, I mean, Agrippa, there are certain historical characters where when you come across them and you start getting into their work, you start to realize like, holy shit, this person is smarter than I am and I may never catch up to them right i mean never like i don't think i'll ever have the capacity that agrippa does to catalog and process information and i'm not sure that i'll ever have the ability that agrippa does to like sort of crack his head open beyond you know sort of like the societal constraints at the time you know i don't i'm not maybe maybe we're just more aware of this now than than he may have been like he may not have realized what he was doing but like we know now that that our culture sort of constrains the way we're able to think about the world. And so we're, we're, I think that people tend to be much more, or once people start to think about that and talk about it, they're, they're kind of aware of like, oh man, I'm always just going to look at the world this way. I'm going to have a certain level of ethnocentrism or cultural centrism or whatever you want to say about it, whatever you want to describe it, that I will never be able to escape. I will always have an implicit bias towards uh, empiricism, towards materialism, towards secular atheism that I will never be able to completely escape. Like it's, it's just, it was, it was trained into me from birth. I, you, it's like a a Pavlov dog bell thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. There's a sense of conditioning. And when, when you're reading three books of occult philosophy from the perspective of let's go cover to cover, let's get like a good understanding of what Agrippa is trying to say in a worldview sense. You come across mm-hmm. these passenger, passages that throw that conditioning into pretty stark relief. Like, there is no fish that can turn a ship to stone. What the hell are you talking about? There was no Italian king who went to bed dreaming of bulls and woke up with horns the next day, for instance. <laughs> you know, what are you talking there, about? What about the, there, are no, there are no witches that control your mind by spraying blood out of their eyeballs? Like, I mean, maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe I, at least I've never seen one. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's, right. there's a lot of that in the book, right? And if you're trying to mm-hmm. sort of discern something that is like um, a workable natural philosophy or a workable cosmology from three books of occult philosophy, a lot of those passages will just cause your eyes to glaze over. Yeah. And it's, it's not necessarily something that's coded, from my perspective at least, or from my reading at least, it's not necessarily coded, it's not necessarily symbolic or metaphorical. It's a worldview that Agrippa was operating in at that particular Mm -hmm. point in history where these were, you know, facts basically about how the world worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's break down that approach too. Agrippa existed at a time before there was a concept of empirical science and materialism being like the correct or proper way to look at things. But also in his time, there was this this really major urge or you were basically taught that the older writing was the more correct it was going to be so so like the thing about the fish that stops ships or or the king who woke up with horns like like that sort of stuff came from pliny the elder who you know died in in 70 ad like you know 1400 years before agrippa was born and people looked at his work in with looked at pliny the elder's work with awe because it was the largest extant and still is the largest extant piece of of latin writing uh that that survived uh classical t- 
times, late antiquity. It's it's basically the the biggest Latin book we have. The biggest Roman book we have is is natural history, and natural history is full of shit. Like <laughs> it is there is you. It's it's delightful. You can go on the Gutenberg project and and all the volumes of it. There's only been one English translation. Uh, I don't know that anybody will ever translate it again. It, it's just like it's it's just full of nonsense. Pick any book, open any chapter skip to the middle of the chapter and just start reading. This would probably be really, really good with marijuana because you'll, you'll want to laugh a lot. And it, it'll just have like the most ridiculous facts about the natural world that you, you'll, you'll just love it. But Agrippa took this stuff for fact because it was written by Pliny the Elder and it was old and it was in Latin and it must be more real. You know, Agrippa never had the chance to explore all the oceans and see if there's a fish that can stop a boat. But if Pliny the Elder said it was true, it must be true. That was a fact in his worldview, you know, just mm. based on mm. it's that logical fallacy. I can't remember what it's called, but, you know, old things are old things are more correct. Yeah. The older it is, yeah, the better thing, it is. Yeah. This is old. Therefore, this is correct. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I understand. It's it's um, it's really interesting, though, because if you we can't help but somewhat look at a literal reading of, of three books mm-hmm. of occult philosophy, which I find hilarious because, you know, from my perspective, I read through it once. I looked and was like, oh, there's no fish that can turn a ship to stone. There's no Italian king who woke up with horns. What are you talking about, Agrippa? Now let's get to the part where I can find the <laughs> sigil that's going to allow me to become rich because I'll make a particular image at a particular astrologically significant time. So most of <laughs> right. your Agrippa enjoyers in mm-hmm. the occult community are looking to Agrippa in piecemeal fashion, but always with the understanding that there's information there that's going to help their magical practice. Right. And I find the, 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 the paradox between those two approaches to Agrippa to be hilarious. I often laugh at myself because I'm like, yeah. you know, philosophically, this doesn't have much sort of sway, or at least it didn't until I listened to your series. But in mm-hmm. practical sort of terms as, you know, a, a book of correspondences, basically, that's yeah. where I found the most value, right? Right. And, and that's, uh, that's an interest. Well, you can use Agrippa that way. And I think that's how I used it for a long time too. Just a, a catalog of correspondences. You'd look it up in the index. You'd be like, you know, what's frankincense good for? And it'd send you to a page. You'd be like, oh, it's, you know, solar. And you use it for, you know, whatever. I don't remember all the uses of frankincense. But again, like in that same chapter, there'll be the passage about the, the, the king who dreamed about his, about, about bulls and woke up with horns and if if that is bullshit why is the frankincense thing a paragraph before not also bullshit exactly or bull horns i guess it's bull horns <laughs> in this case <laughs> <laughs> nice nice um so i mean so so yeah like we w- we should laugh at ourselves for that like why would uh why would a book that is filled with so much nonsense um have anything useful for us how can we how can we reconcile that and I think that there are a few ways to do it. I think I think we we have to remember that we live in a world where things are where where literal truth is very very important. We we focus on it so much. Like think of how oh, we focus on it. I and this is something that is probably I d- haven't really given a whole lot of thought about, but there's a connection between this obsession with literal truth and the tendency of people to fall for fake news. Like we, we can't really accept the fact that, that the majority of our own understanding of our present world is, is fiction and fantasy. You know, like, I don't know which side of Australia you're on, but, but you know, like if you're in Sydney, your picture of Perth that exists in your head is probably not accurate. You have I imagine it isn't. I've never been yeah. there. I've only had images. You've never been there, but you probably hear about it on the news how Perth is doing great. So you think to yourself like, "Oh, everybody in Perth has flowers in their hair and dances in the street. Like it must be amazing there." It happens in the United States right now. So, I live in Portland. We got we had a period of time where there were there was lots of bad press. Portland was filled with anarchists and riots and chaos and it fell into it fell into a into a hellhole of of uh homelessness and destruction and and vice and blah 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 and i still get people all the time being like oh my god how's portland doing and i'm like it's a city it's doing the same as it's always been but we we accept these images we'll talk about images in a little while 
but these are these are the equivalent of magical images, right? These are fantasies that that form our view of the outside world, and we we want we want to only have our head filled with facts, and we don't necessarily we don't necessarily see the relationship between fantasy and and our understanding of reality. We 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 want the imagination to be so wimpy that it is not the thing that controls us. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than being an intermediary between us and the real and quote unquote reality, whatever that is. Right. So that fish that stops ships is basically the flowers in the hair of the people in Perth. Like it doesn't necessarily matter that it's real or not. It can be a fact that lives in your imaginal world and your imaginal landscape. Um, A lot of the stuff that Agrippa would talk about, you know, these these, um, you know, they, they, you know, like the, the, the myth about the Italian king with the horns, which I guess that's going to be our default now. That is our Plato's chair. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, it's the sort of thing where um, it doesn't really literally matter. You know, the fact that that is a legend that exists, that there is an underlying message to it, that there is something there that might tie into uh, astrological images of Taurus or interpretations of dreams or, uh, or a way to, to find, uh, perhaps like a way to interpret, like, uh, do people with more power have more significant dreams? Are their dreams more apt to turn into real, real things, right? Things like that, where, where maybe there's some other message there. There's some other understanding to be had, but the imaginal world in Agrippa's time was very similar to the world of forms in like a, in like a Neoplatonic sense, right? Like it is, it is the reality. It's the real part of the world. The material world is a manifestation of the imaginal, right? It sort of fits inside it. The imaginal is bigger. It's the sphere of the moon, right? It's, it's, it's bigger than the sphere of the earth. It, it yeah, it's it's, it's it. translated light, really. Like if, the, if you yeah, take the lunar function light. of trans, yeah, it, yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's translating the light. I mean, look, I, I don't find what your description of the, you know, your description of the modern world to be controversial because I, I, I just assume that everyone understands that imagination, the imaginal, and what a group of terms fantasy and the phantasmal, you know, that's just kind of the, the reality. And the myth really is the myth of, of, you know, capital R reality, external, objective, not mediated through the, sen- uh, through the, the intermediary point of an imagination or a subjectivity. Nobody, um, nobody understands that. It, it, or like a very, 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 very tiny number of people understand that. Crazy. Crazy. So talk to me about the imaginal in Agrippa, mate, like, because, you know, if he's talking about something that's still relevant to us, we need to sort of understand a little bit what he's saying so that we can approach the work in a a slightly different sense, right? Next time we pick up the Purdue translation and start flipping through when we're about to make a Mars talisman, for instance, we can kind of have a new understanding. I think that that Agrippa's approach to the imaginal is, well, I mean, like I said, I I read occult philosophy for the first time, you know, maybe about 20 or so years ago. It didn't really, really comprehend what I was reading. And it wasn't until later on that I started to get uh, introduced to sort of the the, uh, Renaissance esoteric history studies, like, you know, Francis Yates, Mary Carruthers, Juan Culliano, like those sorts of writers. And I started to realize that I had missed something super, super important in Agrippa, which was his discussion of imagination, his discussing his discussion of fantasy in the imaginal world. Because it turns out that that's that's kind of like really central to how magic works. You know, the the magician acts as kind of like a bridge between the imaginal and the material, and and it's really sort of like at the core of this is is the concept of the imagination as a tool for perception. It's not just a, imagination isn't just an active thing. It isn't just us sitting here imagining the, the, the king with bullhorns. It is our imagination might perceive that image from some external source that may not be uh, in the real world, right? So this is sort of tied to like the concept of how Agrippa's concept of how light works. Okay, so so Agrippa in Agrippa's world, Agrippa's worldview, he there's no idea. He he has zero concept of any sort of like physicality of light. There is no idea of light as a particle or a wave. 
There is no real idea of light as a thing that is like physically present in the same way that we understand it now. Like, you know, we know about photons and we know about light bulbs and we know about all sorts of, you know, it's easy for us to make light. We flip a switch. We have LEDs everywhere. Like to us, light is light is a commodity of, of almost zero value. It's everywhere. Right. But in Agrippa's time, he sort of perceived. So, so light was, was kind of metaphorical, but I don't think it helps to look at light as a metaphor in Agrippa's work. Divine light was a non-material world substance that was exuded from the divine and passed down through all the crystal spheres where the planets sort of rotated around their thing. It was influenced by every single one of those planets and their relationships to each other. It was influenced by every single one of the fixed stars and it made its way down and touched everything in the material world. So everything in the material world is basically an admixture of every piece of light coming from the divine realm and all the different angles and weird ways that it hits every single thing. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, things in the material world have affinities towards certain things. You know, sunflowers have affinity for the sun. Uh, Lead has an affinity for Saturn. And those things would do a better job of absorbing the divine light from the particular celestial objects that they were aligned to. Meanwhile, like the sort of light that is visible light, like the light that that we see with, uh, Agrippa wrote about this as sort of like the flashlight eyeballs thing, which was kind of a common theory at the time. But he writes about it in a couple different chapters in a way where he doesn't really get it. He's like, I don't see how this works. This doesn't really make sense, but this is what is it's this whole thing is like this is what Aristotle says, so it must be true. <laughs> yep. Yep, yep, yep. So so uh so I think that for like the modern practitioner, we can draw a line there between like divine light and material light. Like material light, listen to your physicists and your scientists and your color theorists and and all those sorts of people. Like that's that's how material light works. It's photons bouncing around and you know, causing chemical reactions that send signals to your brain. Like that's cool. That's light. Divine light, on the other hand, is something that is pre-material. It is, it is something that, that causes us to, it is something that our inner senses perceive. So like Agrippa kind of had a list of these inner senses and each one of them interacts with images. Some of them receive the images from our physical sensory organs, right? Your eyeballs, your nose, all those sorts of things. And those are responsible for accepting impressions from the outer world, transforming them into divine light or images that the soul can understand, and then feeding those images to the soul. And then others in other of these inner senses may not really directly interact with the physical senses at all. You know, so memory, uh, the intellect, like these things are inner senses that are capable of sensing divine images or or celestial images and, and perceiving them in specific ways, capable of creating images, and then also capable of like storing and uh, processing and manipulating and working with these images entirely in an imaginal space and entirely using the divine light only. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, I'm sorry about that. (laughs) No, no, that's okay. I was trying the whole time to think of something witty to say when you came back online (laughs) about how the light failed us or something like that. But um, like literally. Yeah. (laughs) So if you look at the world in sort of an emanationist way, and you can do this through through either astrology or like Kabbalah or something of that nature, think of the place where we interact with divine light as being the place where our soul is in the lunar sphere, right? So, so astrologically, it would be like where your where your your moon is placed, or how you how you yourself are interacting with the moon. In like a Kabbalistic point of view, it would be uh, Yesod, you know the the, the ninth uh, Sephira. This is sort of where our imagination lives and, and possibly where all of our inner senses live. Agrippa has a list of these inner senses and, and it is where we, it is where our soul, the, the, the spiritual essence of us interacts with images, both received from the physical world. So these are images that your inner senses receive from your physical senses and translate into things that your soul can understand and images that come from the uh, celestial and divine worlds, right? Things that uh, can exist or things that might come to us through 
dreams, divination, scrying, visions, what, what, what Agrippa calls frenzy, for instance, which is a delightful, whole different topic that I'm not quite ready to cover yet. Like all of these are, are external images that, uh, that your imagination, oh no, it happened again. No fucking way. Physical light is being a (laughs) bitch today. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right. Uh, I think that atheistic materialism hurt us. The egregore is oh, yeah. after us, mate. <laughs> okay, so the rest of the podcast is going to happen telepathically. So everybody... Yeah. <laughs> and we'll, we'll only talk about Dawkins from here on in and everything will yeah. go fine. <laughs> okay, so so this perception, this this level of perception is um, is a thing that leads to like creativity, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, one of the most important elements of it is that our soul, the thing that is sort of like the nature of us that is immeasurable in the material world, doesn't understand speech. It doesn't understand sound waves and flapping meat and pushing air through flapping meat. You know, that's not how our souls talk. So we need this sort of bridge between the physical world and the imaginal world in order to receive communication in the form of images with our soul. So that's that's sort of an essential part of of a of the renaissance approach to imagery and it's important when you look at how agrippa thinks that images work and how image magic works in renaissance magic this bridge juan culiano calls it uh, the phantasmal apparatus which i think is a delightful name and he also calls it the imaginal faculty so it's our ability to process images uh, our soul's ability to process images and this is kind of where the divine light thing is so important. Like astrologers who look into kind of like medieval and earlier astrology will come across uh, the theory of rays, like Alkindi's theory of rays. Uh, and Alkindi was an Arabic, like you want to talk about polymath, like this dude, uh, Alkindi, it's, it's impossible for anybody to like cover everything that Alkindi covered. He wrote like a bazillion books and they were all on a different topic. It's really nuts. But he was also in like the ninth century. So he was, you know, 500 years before Agrippa. So his ideas went through a lot of permutations and a lot of development over time. So Agrippa's approach to divine light may not be identical to Alkindi's theory of rays. There might be some nuance there. I'm not really in a place to, I, I don't have enough knowledge to really break that down very well. So, so maybe. Understood, understood. Okay, so I think it, we've, got, we've got divine light as an uh-huh. intermediary that allows the tripartite um, self to kind of, you know, communicate, you know, between the, yeah. the, the body, the sensate body, the mm-hmm. internal sort of senses allow the, the, the body, the mind and the soul to kind of in, communicate via the medium of images that come from divine light. Yes. And I, yes. I think that the tripartite sort of model of everything is really super important to Agrippa. There is a reason why mm-hmm. there are three books of occult philosophy. So <laughs> this is all happening within an understanding of the universe that, that relies on, you know, the natural world, the celestial world, the divine world, the body, the mind, the soul. Yeah. I mean, when you're in book one and you're, ta- and you're looking at the stuff on the inner senses, I'm not sure he makes as much... Well, shit, that's a good question. And again, it's a huge book. Uh, and and it, it's going to take a long time before I have a, a an incredibly deep understanding of all of it. This is mainly what I've managed to just pull out in the time that I've had. So yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. I think, though, that what I think what we... What I really want to emphasize here is that the soul is responsible for not only perceiving images, but creating images. So where that goes is like a lot of Agrippa's magic, the image magic that is part of like astrological magic, involves images that are created first in the soul and then in the physical world. What I'm going to say is that in my experience, after reading Agrippa and working with Agrippa, something that ends up being far more powerful with this sort of like image magic is if you can craft the image in your soul first, if you use your imagination to build the image and then, and then record it into a physical medium, you'll have a much easier time or a better time of working with this. There's a common factor that allows the parts of the, per- the, the, the body to communicate with one another, which is images. Uh-huh. You've got a common factor which you know, allows the human to communicate with the divine, which is images. You've mm-hmm. got a tripartite model of the universe where you're using images in order to affect affinities between natural substances and divine powers, mm-hmm. and that's you know image magic. Yeah. So what what you've got with Agrippa 
is you've got, I guess, a, a, an explanatory model that has everything foundationally sort of prefaced in light and, you know, yeah. secondarily and utilitarian in a utilitarian sense, in practical terms, utilizing images that come from light in order to affect change in the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's uh, hold on here. I think I might have a, a really good sort of like concrete way to look at this. That I was just sort of thinking about so like images are how your soul interacts with the physical world, which means that let's say you are looking at an iron ingot right now. I can say iron ingot and neither of us will have the same image of one built in our or I don't, who knows who knows if we have the same image of one. But you you have a physical iron ingot in front of you. Your soul is able to recognize this because of the image of iron ingot that is existing in your soul, right? Sort of like a form or a or a or an idea. Yeah. That that image is basically your entire real experience of it. The 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 physical ride along thing, your physical senses just lie are just a lie, a material world lie. So your interaction with this is basically entirely images. Now the where this gets interesting is it's it's the image itself that is receiving the divine light. The image itself is made of the divine light. So all of the the rays, the planetary rays, the stars and all that kind of stuff that's coming into it, all of that is is present in the imaginal representation of the object, which is why when you can you can create images that that sort of, you know, capture like a moment in time and have an image that that captures, you know, like an like an elected image that captures, you know, the the correct aspect of Mars and and Jupiter and the moon and all that kind of stuff. It's the the image captures that and then you record the image onto a material object in a material way in order to evoke or recall the image that you have already created that has been lodged in your memory, your fourth, your fourth inner sense, so that there's that interaction there, right? So like, yeah, our interaction with the world is us as soul interacting with the images of the world that exist in our soul. Yes. It's yes. yes. Okay. Okay. It's a weird, I, I still have trouble with it. I have a very difficult time wrapping my head around it and I look around the world and I'm kind of like, but I can see things. And I'm like, I, I can't, I can't see things. Yeah. No, no, I actually, look, I'm, I'm actually really happy with what we've recorded about what we've managed to capture about a discussion of images, a discussion of light, a discussion of a gripper, because by far it's probably the clearest exposition of the underlying philosophical themes that influence magic that's probably ever been captured anywhere. It's convoluted oh by nature. It's convoluted it by nature, right? Yeah. You, you, you know, the, the philosophical underpinnings of magic generally have been attempted to be explained by people like Agrippa, by people like, to a certain extent, Picatrix as well, right? The other uh-huh. big book yeah. that everyone knows from that particular point in magic and history. But the, the thing is, right, you've got a very convoluted kind of philosophical underpinning and theoretical underpinning to a practice that by definition in this paradigm that we're, we're living in, which is atheistic materialist, late capitalist 2024 whatever you want to call it it's antithetical <laughs> it's antithetical and that's what is attractive for most yeah, practitioners yeah. is yeah, that it allows yeah. you to step outside of that paradigm momentarily and that's mm-hmm. i think a really interesting but also inherently problematic way of approaching someone like a gripper and approaching the work right which is that we look yeah. at things like the horns and we go well that's ridiculous but we also look at things like a planetary table of jupiter and go that makes perfect sense let's let's bring in that jupiterian energy we have mm-hmm. this piecemeal approach to a work that attempts to kind of overarchingly explain how the world works to justify the reality of magic something that can't actually be captured and passed and pushed through uh, an atheistic materialist lens and even down yeah. to the connectivity issues that we're experiencing on the call, <laughs> the difficulty of trying to force that through the sieve <laughs> of atheistic well, materialism, it's writ large. <laughs> but the thing that's so interesting to me about it is like, I think it's obvious that, that whatever Im- images that, that I was trying to force through this, you picked up on regardless of our connection issues, our physical connection issues may not have had a six as successful a time communicating as our souls did. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean, it's, it's the difficulty of trying to comprehend that from in many ways, like an inescapable explanatory structure that we're, we're working with, which is, you Mm -hmm. know, atheistic materialism. 
And it's the insidiousness of that, that that I find great difficulty in trying to reconcile with the reality of magic and what it is. It's a constant struggle as a magician to figure out how to break out of that. You know, I think one of the the things that I really enjoy about modern magic is it has, there's a lot of sort of like postmodern approaches. I don't know if it's postmodern. It might be. I might be using that word wrong. I don't study modern philosophy. So if I use words wrong, just let me know later. But, uh, you know, like Patrick Dunn writes, writes about this kind of stuff. He's got this great book. What is it? Magic power symbol word. I think it's called. They might not be in that order, but, uh, but he talks about ways of using like semiotics and, and adjusting sort of belief in interesting ways. You also get a lot sort of like in chaos magic, which I think is at least in the the 90s version of it was a little too rooted in materialistic atheism. But one of the things that happens in chaos magic is there's sort of this idea of being able to like shift or change your belief system and paradigm like they they have sort of like practices that sort of focus on that. So I think that there's always been kind of a recognition that the modern world and the magical worldview clash in ways that are really difficult for us to come to terms with. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you, well, it, it is, it is a postmodern approach to shift belief. Oh, and good. I, I use the word right? Of, yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Cool. Um, cool. All right. Because when we were talking about Agrippa's context where there's this kind of assumption that if something is very old, it's very true. And the older it is, the truer it is. Mm-hmm. There would have been, you know, uh, the way in which even philosophical inquiry would have been approached would have been totally different. You wouldn't be looking to completely eviscerate the current, you know, paradigm in, and just replace it with your own in the way that we do at such a high velocity in the mm-hmm. postmodern age or wherever we are at the moment, post-postmodern. And looking at Copernicus, there's, there's an excellent part of the, the series that you've produced where you speak about Copernicus. You speak about the way in which Agrippa wouldn't have really known very much about him at all and wouldn't have been exposed mm-hmm. to his work. And it, just how long it took for a heliocentric model to kind of replace a geocentric model, it, it took like centuries for that to come through, right? We can't just oh, sort yeah, of shift yeah. worldviews so easily in medieval Europe. But in yeah. the modern age, what we can do is we can jump very light-footedly between explanatory models, or at least so we assume. We, we can assume that, but I don't know that we do it that quickly or that easily for real. You know, we might do it on a lark or we might do it, uh, we might pretend we're doing it, but being able to really do it is, is tough. You know, I mean, I've been working with this stuff for a, for a long time and I think that my understanding of the Renaissance magician's worldview has deepened a lot, but I also recognize that I can't fully adopt it. Like there's a lot of stuff in there that I just can't fully adopt. It just won't, it won't work. It won't happen. And I think that it has also sort of led me into kind of like an exploration of how worldviews have shifted over time. And they're, it's gradual. It's a real gradual shift. Every time there is an upset in how the worldview works uh, for, a, for a culture, like let's say, um, you know, we, we do have instances where that happens. You know, the American Revolution is a really good one. The Protestant Reformation is a really good one. Uh, these are places where, where things changed you know, there have been, there had been a lot of things sort of happening behind the scenes. Various people might've been shifting their worldviews. And then there's an event that causes a lot of shift to happen in a very short amount of time. Every time that happens, the worldview might change very drastically over a short period of time, like a century. That's a short period of time. It's going to be more than one generation, right? It won't happen during your generation, probably not during your kid's generation. Maybe your grandkids will be, will be heliocentrists, but you even you as as the scientist discovering this stuff probably won't be able to completely take it in. So, but but as those worldview shifts happen, we get rid of a lot of the stuff from the previous worldview that was holding us back, but we also get rid of the good stuff. Like we eliminate we we throw the baby out with the bathwater over and over and over again throughout history. It just keeps happening. We you know, we we get rid of we get rid of uh, problematic ideas, but the the good ideas that they were attached to also get discarded. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's actually quite a lot in Agrippa about images that describes the reality that we live in now without necessarily mm-hmm. negating atheistic materialism. Yeah. Just to use your example about the flowers in people's hair in Perth, 
<laughs> Aside from the fact that I would love if Perth was actually like that, it's it's actually just full of people who work in mines, is my understanding. Again, oh, I've so never there been you go. There they personally. don't have flour in their hair. It's soot. <laughs> Maybe they do, right? But uh, it's it's a pretty jocular place from from the images that we receive in Australia. Uh-huh. Likewise, Portland. Like my understanding of Portland's based very much on that comedy show, uh, Portlandia. And I've heard a little bit on like Joe Rogan about how awful Portland is and San Francisco and most of the the sort of West Coast of, of the United States. So I've got a very mixed view. But we spend most of our lives literally looking at, at a, a two-dimensional representation of the world around us through the medium of our phones, through screens, through things like that. It's nothing but a, a cavalcade of images constantly some of which stir the soul or, you know, the, the um, dopamine circuits, you know, in another way of describing it, and some of which don't, right? And it's mm-hmm. the, the sort of desire that kind of attends that that motivates us to action. So, you know, a lot of the descriptions of modern magical practitioners are they all work in marketing, right? All the, all the modern wizards are in marketing or they're in tech or yeah. they're in what have you. And there's something to that. Because that's the medium through which most people consume the images that motivate most of their behavior in a, in a very real sense. Yeah. I mean, literally, like you talk to, uh, let's say a magician is like, I need to get grocery money. I'm going to do magic to get grocery money. So maybe you'll make a sigil. Maybe you'll make an astrological talisman. You'll do something that involves an image. But let's say there's a marketer who's like, uh, I need to sell a bunch of uh, Cheerios. I need to sell a bunch of breakfast cereal. I am going to make an image of a vampire who loves chocolate. And I mm. am going to project it out into the world and see if this sells breakfast cereal. Like, how is yep. that not image yep, magic? Yep. That's image magic. It's the same thing. And you know exactly who I'm talking about. That image is in your head already, isn't it? You know Count Chocula. I do know Count Chocula. We don't have Count Chocula in Australia, but even though it's not on my supermarket shelf, I know who the fuck Count Chocula is. (laughs) You know what I mean? So (laughs) that's the power of image magic, right? Yeah, that's the power of image magic. Well, even down to the incomprehensibility of reconciling a, you know, chocolate eating vampire with a children's breakfast cereal. There's, mm-hmm. there's something to that because when you look at, for instance, I think it's either Picatrix or, um, or Agrippa, but the image of the moon, which is a corn-neutered woman riding a crab with two serpents, you know, in either, in either hand. And, yeah, you know, you're that's like, the why moon, the buddy. hell is that the moon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, all, and- all we're doing in order to motivate our behavior here is we're looking at images that aren't connected to the world that we take in through our senses external to images. Even though yeah. they're all images, the, the more abstracted the image, the, the greater the power. And you can reconcile that with, with Agrippa because of the, the way in which sight is purer, because it operates at a distance, the way in mm-hmm. which light is reflected down through the spheres from uh, um, gradually sort of more and more levels of abstraction the more you go up. Mm-hmm. There, there is a way in which Agrippa retains a philosophical relevance to, to yeah. modern existence without necessarily negating the physical material operation of light as particles, waves, etc. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And I think that there's, there are some real practical lessons that, that um, Agrippa's uh, approach to divine light can have for the modern magician. One of them is that uh, to make images more potent, you tie them to passions. You know, you tie them to things that you feel really passionate about. And you can do this in a way that like if you're doing astrological magic, for instance, if you're doing like, I don't know, let's go back to the money spell. If you're doing a money spell and you're doing like a talisman to Jupiter, you find the passions or the the emotions that are tied to Jupiter and you make an image that arouses those emotions in you. So like if Jupiter is about joviality, I guess literally. Jupiter would be about joviality because that's where the word comes from. But like, let's say it's about joviality and it's about rulership and it's about being a king and it's being about being in charge. So maybe you create an image that is based on like a a rapper, you know, covered in gold and riding down the street in his like a car with like the spinny wheel things and, you know, with, with gold teeth and a gold crown and, 
And you sort of create this image that is like larger than life, possibly not real, steal it from a music video, use it as an image of Jupiter. And you have created an, a magical image that arouses these feelings of like success and wealth in your, in your soul, right? Yeah, the, yeah, that image needs to be tied to those sorts of feelings. You know, we want to keep using all of the same images that Agrippa and the Picatrix feed us because they're amazing and kind of ridiculous. But modern imagery might speak better to your soul as a magician. So it might be worth it to create your own modern magical images. And I know that yeah, absolutely there are probably a lot of magicians out there right now being like, but I can't draw that. And I will just have you go look into, go look at the PGM and see the quality of artwork that was in there. If you can do better than that. And trust me, your three-year-old can, you're, you're doing fine. <laughs> Stick figures are great. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting because, you know, a jovial image, yeah, it should be a wrapper, like with a grill, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Diamonds in the teeth, literally dripping in gold. Flapping hundred dollar bills around, ride. you know, uh, yeah, yeah, just yeah. you know, making it rain. <laughs> that should be it. And yet, we find ourselves as magical practitioners directly in the same mindset as a gripper. And this is possibly why, for instance, medieval astrological magic has so much appeal, because we look at a gripper, we look at Picatrix, we look at Ficino, we look at all of these different writers from that area in history, and we go, "It's old, and so it must be true." It's very old. It must be true. I have to do the, I have to get the right. Stupid internet happened. It happened again. Image and I have to get the right incense and I have to do all of these things that are exactly as per the book without understanding that we're falling into a similar kind of fallacy to the one that we, we sort of casually <laughs> accuse a group like of when we little first song open my up internet connection is bullshit. philosophy. And it goes Jesus, like this. I hope, my internet got, I hope connection you caught that. You're still coming up bullshit. as shit. <laughs> Okay, obviously it's time for a little bit more guitar. All right, Rev, are you coming up as, as yellow again? Here we go, okay. <laughs> yes! That's fantastic. All right, cool. Um, okay. That was a song, that was a song, a musical interlude called My Internet Connection is Bullshit in A Minor. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. You know, I'm I'm going to I'm going to very very lightly edit this episode, but I'm okay. going to include a lot of this simply because uh -huh. simply because it's it's convoluted. It's, you know, it's a cult for a reason. Right? Yeah. It's not three books of clearly visible philosophy. It's three books of occult <laughs> philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you were making a really good point right before uh, this latest internet hiccup, um, and I honestly, I kind of, I, I, can you say it again? All Do you right. remember yeah, what it no, was? That's okay. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. All right. So, look, the the, the point Shit, I was trying did it to make again? is internet connection. I'm going to save it for you so you can use it. You can include the image in your show notes. What the fuck? <laughs> oh my god. Uh, okay. So the point I was trying to make was okay so myself included a lot of modern practitioners that i know of they they want to go by the book so there's this understanding that three books of occult philosophy is very old therefore it's very true picatrix is very old therefore it's very true the image that i need to make of jupiter the image i need to make of mars etc etc has to be what's described in the book. It can't be, for what's instance. What's going on? Why isn't it connected? What? I can see you. Oh, this Shay is a nightmare. Hello. Can, can you hear me? <laughs> yes. All right, cool. All right, and we've got a waveform for you too. That's good. All right, cool. Okay, okay. All right. The point, the point about images uh -huh. is that um, a lot of occult practitioners, a lot of magical practitioners, myself included, we are guilty of the same thing that we sort of accuse a gripper of, which is we're guilty of a worldview that, you know, sees a gripper as very old and therefore very true. If I'm making an image of Mars, for instance, yes, it has to be exactly as a gripper describes. It needs to be like a soldier with a lance in one hand and that's Mars. 
And yeah. if I was doing this in a modern sense, if I was stepping fully into the modern imagery, I'd be using something totally different for Mars. I'd probably be using like Shakira during that Super Bowl performance where there was just fire everywhere and she was or just Rambo. totally fucking. Yeah, like fucking it would Rambo, be. Yeah. It would be Rambo or it'd be like The Rock. He would be a great Mars image, you know, yes. something, something that kind of like martial and like we look up to them because they are action heroes we don't care that they solve their problems with violence that's the martial way <laughs> yeah yeah exactly right there's, i mean there's all manner of ways in which you can incorporate like our images of what mars is also these days isn't contained to the purely genetically masculine as well so you've got all manner True. of different ways in which you can you can sort of participate in the martial archetype Likewise, Venus. I wouldn't necessarily use a woman for Venus. I'd probably use Harry Styles. Harry Styles has an exceptional Venus in his chart. Oh, yeah. Like, he's just so Venusian. Mm -hmm. And I'd use something like, you know, a Harry Styles-esque figure to represent Venus. So, you know, like I was saying before, one of the things that I lost my connection again. This is bullshit. What the hell? Oh, hey, hey. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So what I was right. going to say was that, yeah. like, you know, you you want the images to sort of like arouse uh, the passions that are associated with the planet. So a good Mars image might actually be something that makes you angry. Yeah. Like an enemy soldier. A good Venus image might be something that arouses your your lust. So like maybe a porn star or something like that. The image should be kind of over the top and it should be something that inflames your passions easily. You know, the ones that are associated with the, with the planet. So, so yeah, but I think modern imagery, modern imagery is the way to go. I, I like your point about when we look at like Agrippa and Picatrix, the, the older, better thing is you know, we can't do that. We certainly, for instance, like we look at like in the Picatrix, we look at like those incense recipes that are filled with like lead and and sulfur and we're like oh we're not going to do that but we will use this magical image of mercury in the next chapter absolutely this totally <laughs> yeah it's the same kind of thing I, I i think i think that's actually a really good point to maybe draw it to a close simply because right first of all the internet connection's not not amazing yeah today but i think <laughs> that's actually the, the bridge between modern and, um, and ancient and the grounds from which we launch a critique of medieval astrological magic in order to kind of align it with where we actually are at this stage in history. That's mm -hmm. an excellent topic for, for a part two. Agreed. So, you know, I, think, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of what I'm going to talk about on your podcast. And I think that maybe this as a kind of part two conversation, uh -huh. hopefully with a better internet connection might be good. What are you thinking? I think that would be an amazing topic. Um, yeah. And also if we do a part two and wait for my internet to get better, it'll give us a few days to, uh, <laughs> to think about stuff. To oh think my God. about stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah look, I, I just I, want I still to think apologize on behalf of American internet connections everywhere. Oh God, no, no, not at all. We, we're gonna we're gonna leave it here, but I'm gonna make extensive show notes because you've got to check out the Reverend's website. You've got to check out the podcast. Like we didn't even get a chance to speak outside of the series on Agrippa. The podcast is great, not just because you frequently have T Susan Chang on, and I've got a massive professional sort of, you know, tarot reader crush on T. Susan Chang. <laughs> I think she's amazing. I use, I actually use her uh, pronunciations for, for ancient Greek a lot. And I try and sort of mimic those when I'm doing work with Asclepius, for instance. Oh, nice, nice. So if you're after some amazing podcast, you know, experiences, go look up the Arnomancy podcast. It's fucking awesome. And definitely so listen that's to the Agrippa series too, mate, because that's like a triumph. Oh man, that's thank you. That's glowing. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. That's that's very kind. I I haven't yeah. I, I don't know what to say. Except thanks. Thanks. Yeah. I'm blushing. I'm having an internet blush. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd probably try and include this as a video podcast as well, but maybe the world will blow up. It's one of the triggers right. for World War Three. <laughs> um yeah, and so uh yeah, and all that stuff can be found at arnamancy.com. Um the Agrippa, there's a shortcut to the Agrippa podcast. You can go arnamancy.com slash Agrippa and it'll take you right there. So 
my internet crapped out again. Of course. It's just how it goes now. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Please go hey, ahead. Please go ahead. I have reconnected and I once again cannot see you. I guess I'm just going to assume that we're done. <laughs> what the fuck? No. No, dude. We're not I done. <laughs> I get so I can. I'm getting chat messages from Matt now, where he's saying, "What the fuck? No, dude. I can see you, see and hear you. Please do the plug for your stuff." Okay, you can find all of my material at arnamancy.com. That's where you can find the podcast and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the Agrippa series in particular, arnamancy.com/slash/agrippa will send you straight to that. Aside from that, I. Don't know what else to say, except uh, you can find the uh, Dragonstone podcast everywhere that podcasts can normally be found. So please subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube, I don't know if Matt's even on YouTube, but like, you know, like and subscribe and do that thing. Uh, And if you are listening on any other podcast platform, please go to his website, which is probably something like dragonstoneastrology.com or dragonstone.co.au or mattdragonstonehascoolhair.com and subscribe to his podcast also. Oh, he says it's dragonstoneastrology.com. I think that was my first guess. Okay, uh, thanks. Have an excellent evening or if you are in Australia, morning (laughs) and uh, we will see you next time. Oh my fucking god, thanks mate, see ya. (laughs) You can't even hear me. This is Vanessa Irena, and I'm really excited to announce my new store, Sword and Scythe, where I'll be offering magical art, materia, and services beneath Mars and Saturn. You can visit the store at swordandscythe.com and be sure to sign up for the email list to receive early access to new releases.